0: Hello and welcome to episode 166. My guest today is Babak Pahlavan, CEO and founder of Ninjatech AI, a conversational AI designed to be a personal assistant for business people. Babak immigrated to the U.S. with his family in the early 2000s and studied engineering at UC Berkeley and Stanford. He then created CleverSense, an AI personal assistant focused on personalized recommendations in the real world, which was acquired by Google in 2011. He's now collaborating with SRI International on autonomous agents. SRI is one of the birthplaces of the Internet and one of the first nodes on what was then called the ARPANET. The venerable Silicon Valley Institute was founded by Stanford University in the 40s and is also the birthplace of Siri, the virtual assistant of Apple devices, who woke up on a thousand iPhones next to listeners when I said her name just now. Hi, Siri, order two gallons of chocolate chip ice cream. Let's get into the interview. With Babak Pahlavan. Babak Pahlavan, welcome to AI and You. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you are working here at Ninja Tech on executive assistant. That's AI, sort of smart butler, right-hand man slash woman slash AI for executives. It's a dream of many, and we need to approach this by stages. First of all, is it accurate to call this an AI agent? Is that the right terminology?
1: It's somewhat accurate. Under the hood, we actually have agents, plural. We have we've been training various different AI agents with different skills. Essentially, the total experience on top adds up to be. This is our aspiration to get it to a point that you end up with an AI-powered sort of executive assistant that feels like a human,
0: mm.
1: without duping you, without. The pretense that I'm not a robot. No, it says like you can tell it's a robot. But executive assistants are highly sought after. They're super expensive. In in Bay area, they cost anywhere around eighty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars a year. But if you have one, it makes your life the really good ones. They make your life really enjoyable because they take a lot of the drudgery out of sort of work in general. So where we're building this is for busy professionals, yeah. uh, professionals at work, or even. Stay home, mom and dads, like people that are just busy in their lives, and they would love to have somebody to help them out with their day-to-day administrative type of work. But it's usually out of reach; it's usually too expensive. So, with mm-hmm. with conversational AI, we can get it to be pretty close. It'll be a lifelong sort of endeavor to make it as close as it can, such that you can actually lean on it and you can just tell it what you want, and it would just go to work on your behalf.
0: Right. And yesterday I was actually just having one of those fatherly chats with my 13 year old elder daughter. And I was saying, you know, this position of executive assistant or right hand woman to someone that's highly competent leader in their field is a terrific way of getting mentoring and entering a field like that. Because if you can be the person that someone that you admire and want to learn from trusts, you will. Be invaluable, and you will learn skills in a way that you can't get any other way. And exactly. here you are trying to automate the position before she's even ready for it. So let's describe. <laughs> let's talk about that. Actually, I don't think, and I genuinely believe this. I don't think
1: these AI-powered systems are going to ever replace executive assistants. I've had executive assistants for the last I don't know 15 years, and they actually just like what you were sort of hinting at, they end up becoming sort of a duplicate of your brain, the good ones, because they know what you want. They can help you prioritize. And then the progression usually is that they become chiefs of staff. And they don't like to do usually like calendaring or like things that are very mechanical. They end up becoming your confidant and they can actually understand nuances. Oh, this meeting, you can just forego it. You already talked to this person. But then this other person is really, really important, like they need to get in touch with you and don't be late on this meeting. Humans are going to have the ability to discern those nuances. I think AI is long ways away. So a lot of times actually from our own user testing, executive assistants, human ones, are the ones that are asking for our product because they're like, just give me time back so I can focus on the real value add, which is I can help my exec to think through things. So in a way they become sort of a clone or, like, a duplicate of your brain. So, you have like multiple people that are looking out for the interest the exec is going after. So, I think the premise is still right. I do
0: think you get mentored and you get to learn how they think. But isn't that nuance 90% of the job? I mean, making a travel reservation, you can fire that off to Expedia or something right now. That's easily outsourced. But things like screening your calls or appointments, prioritizing those, is all nuance. And yet it's a huge part of that job is to juggle a calendar. Doesn't that require understanding the priorities of the person? Right now, ChatGPT is asking me to input personal things about myself so it can, quote, get to know me better and make these kind of decisions. And after seeing the sort of things it's been doing, I'm not sure that it can't. So, doesn't your project live and die by understanding of nuance? To some extent, yeah. But it turns out the
1: mechanical side of things, in order to just filter through options. I don't know, like when was the last time you were trying to like for family arrange uh, travel?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So just even logistically figuring things out, what's available based on the budget, based on the timelines. Oh, and then just traversing through sort of. Probably endless amount of options at this point. Right. And figuring out the top three that would fit our minds. And then you would bounce it off of family or you look through it and you finally pick one. Getting through that, filtering things down and understanding how to do things still well. That's still a lot of work. Our research tells us, like, on average, uh, busy professionals are spending at work, not even like sort of at home. These are like people without executive assistants or middle managers. They're spending about four or five hours per week just doing calendaring, just talking to people. Like, when are you available? Oh, I'm available at this time. Oh, I'm not available at this time. Like doing that kind of a back and forth that requires talking to humans, it takes a lot of work. The next level after that is, well, your calendar is completely booked. Which ones should I let go, which ones are less important? I think we will get into those. I think there is a way to get into like additional layers of nuance. For example, understanding the hierarchy in an organization. Like if you see a VP asking for a meeting, it's easy for us to model it and say, oh, that's probably more important than somebody lower in the chain, but it's going to take a lot of iterations. Humans can pick up those things much faster, better, Hmm. you know, and humans also have a lot more context because they're in the know. But if the moment you have an objective, you're like, okay, I know. I need to get in touch with these seven people, but I need to go to war with their calendars (laughs) in order to line up. Yeah, that's something that that's what we call drudgery of work. Like nobody gets up in Albert to go. Oh, I'm gonna go wrestle with seven people's
0: calendar. Well, it's not just middle managers; it's entrepreneur. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I spend a huge amount of my time doing this for. Business and negotiating with people about different travel options, different date options, different yeah. compensation options. And, and personally, looking at family travel do we get one room or two? It, that depends on the room layout and other things yeah. that someone would have to know me intimately to do. This was why remote assistants have just nice. not worked out for me. So help make this real for me in its ideal incarnation or whatever you're aiming for as MVP. Tell me, give me a word picture how this would work for someone.
1: So this is modeled after human virtual assistants, actually. They kind of know you, they understand sort of your preferences. But then you say, but instead of choosing complicated UIs and whatnot, you're like, hey, can you try to get time for me in these early stages? It's more like, for example, let's just focus on the notion of calendaring or outreach. And there are two distinct skills in our book. One is that I'm trying to get in touch with Peter. Can you ask him when he's available? Traditionally, like in the old models, is a machine would talk to someone's API. So if I have access to a calendar, I try to like finagle my way through it. Or the older ways is like I give you, you give me a link of calendar link, and I have to like munch through it. This, in its ideal state, kind of blows through all of that. It'll just send you an email and it says, "Hey, Bobak wants to meet with you at this time. When are you available?" You talk to it. You talk to it like in your own normal language. Like I'm not available this Monday. How about Thursday? Or I can do probably Friday as well. Having an understanding of what that is and be able to do some light negotiation is what it does. So I think that's sort of on the base layer of these mm. things. Then it becomes more advanced as we move forward. Then it's about like stitching together multiple actions together. Hey, can you give me time with Peter? Also, see what he likes. I would like to send him a gift. And also, let's take the team out to dinner tonight and call up local restaurants and one person, by that has a food allergy. Those are the kinds of things that you would have to tell the human normally to do. But as we are now seeing that technology is totally possible now to be able yeah. to understand the intent, break it up into different actions, sequence it correctly, and be able to have the ability to talk to machines as well as humans now using generative AI. But generative AI is just one component of this. Hmm. Other layer is these adaptive state machines.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: It's like you when I'm talking to Peter, Peter may not machines respond right away. Peter is busy. So but I need to know that oh, when he responds, it's about this other inquiry that I had with him and I understand it. And then another the layer is personalization, as you called it. It's like, oh, usually Bobak likes to take his meeting outside meetings in the morning. Don't do it afternoon. But then if you count, but just like how a human would, if you say I'm only available in the afternoon. It would say, aha, uh-huh, I got to go back to my exec and say, what do you want to do with this? You have a choice. Just maneuvering through all of that is modeled after a human assistant. And all of right. this is done through conversations, not extensive UIs or complicated things that you need to learn. Just do as you would.
0: And there's a risk factor there that when you're dealing with a conversation, you either explicitly or implicitly think you're dealing with a human. And I. Read an article by someone who was setting up an interview time, a meeting time with another person by email. And they said, Well, here, do that with my assistant. And the assistant arranged the time. And then the assistant mailed back and said, Nope, sorry, they can't make that. Here's another time. Can you do that? Yes, they can. And then they mailed back and said, Nope, sorry, I've got to cancel that. This went on three or four times. Eventually, the person got fed up and said, Forget it. Yeah. And then realized, that they were talking to an AI and not a person. And this thing was just automating an interface to this person's calendar, but obviously hadn't internalized just how humans react to being treated that way. There is a risk, right? How do you retire that risk?
1: So we have two top-level metrics in the company. One is time-saving. So everything we do is about, did we save you time? And then the second factor is delightfulness. Just being a robotic time-saving thing is not enough. If you do it, but the experience is such that people hate it, we've still failed. Because I keep going back to the model of just like any other advances in technology, you model it after humans. Like what are the things that we find really the sort of the north star experience, and then model it after that. Really good executive assistants—they really try to save you time. They really try to minimize the ping-pongs and they're very nice about it and also they have as part of the delightfulness they also have this concept of sort of empathy and understanding things and picking up on perhaps emotional frustrations that are happening as part of the interactions easier said than done right but usually when those things are happening they're missing the second bucket altogether it's just like ping pong in someone's calendar and they also haven't done the it's easy to build something that just like those things as a prototype type of a thing to make it a production quality thing. It's very hard because we have to observe these types of experiences and then make sure that we don't run into it. On a more technical level, one of the things that we have that we're working on is this notion of an overseer. So it's not just one model. There's another model that like oversees the full experience. And if a conversation is going on for too long, unless you told it to go waste someone's time, it should intercept and then say that, this has been going on too long. Because actually, even a more practical experience is when you're getting into a loop. But mm-hmm. even if this is like a really failed case scenario, that you said, I mean, hopefully we will have, avoid that pretty easily. But even the cases in which you're dealing with seven people's calendar and uh, they're just not converging, like they're just constantly moving and it's just not converging. And then this is constantly going round and round. For those, we need to intercept. We need to say, well, this is having a hard time converging and then go back to the exec and then say, suggestions. We can break this up into two meetings and we can get it on right now. Or what would you like me to do? So it, it, at a lot of times right. when in doubt, you should go back to the person that has a lot more context and say, what would you like me to do? Mm. Same with an assistant. That's what they do. When something is not convergent, they'll come back to like, I'm trying to make this work. It's not happening. What's your suggestion? It's going to piss people off if I continue. So right. I think that's really key to really have that overarching insight. But a secondary thing, which is also a deep thing which uh, we can talk to is the notion of sensing frustration and having the notion of empathy, essentially.
0: Right. And that person who was writing the article may not have been communicating frustration until they had had enough. They may have been maintaining a professional veneer. But yeah. I wondered to myself whether I could have taken the conversation up until that point, pasted it into a large language model and said, how do you think the person on this end of the conversation feels at this point, And I think it might well have assessed that they're probably getting annoyed. Now, trust me. Which makes me think about one of the key attributes, the value add of a personal assistant is that feeling of being taken care of. And I don't think it's an accident that that word is care, that there is caring. That's and true. if we try to deconstruct it and pre-programme, all of the ways in which something should behave empathetically, we can't do that. That is like going back to good old-fashioned AI, symbolic logic. You'll just never touch all those bases. Mm. You have to approach it in some way that can generate that from an understanding or what passes for an understanding of the way humans tick. And large language models actually produce a convincing imitation of that. Can we go in that direction with your professional assistant to experience that feeling of being taken care of?
1: Yeah, and just like any other product, the way we think about it's to deconstruct it with like, you know, cases easy to hard, and then let's cover the easy cases and then build our way up. And by that, I mean, if somebody expresses frustration, oh, this is really bothering me, I'm getting really pissed right now. Getting like, actually, when you hear someone verbalizing, either frustration or sadness. If it asks you, how are you feeling today? You would just say that, oh, feeling really sad today. Actually, I had a really rough weekend. Oh, my dog just sick. The old systems would just speed past that. (laughs) You know, okay, your meeting is blocked. But the way we're approaching this is that if you're sensing those, then you should respond with an empathetic sort of reaction. Something as simple as, I'm sorry to hear that. How can I help you? Mm. The next level is, Sorry to hear that, but I know you like your matcha lattes. Would you like me to order one for you right now?
0: Mm. The,
1: the notion of sort of surprising you with going above and beyond that you're, we're not used to, to, to expect from software in general. But now with Gen AI, if you've trained it, so it understands that now it's possible. Uh, this is actually what be one of the things that we've been working on. We have our own sort of custom models. And one of them was like, let's just teach it empathy and see how it goes. And, you know, if somebody says these prompts, like, how would you, what are the right responses? And then like now, let's do Chef on this, and then let's teach it. And surprisingly, it works really well for this base level. But the next level is to not teach it when it's not, the verbal sort of words are not there, but the, the cues are there. There's some the hints at it there. Mm. So the goes.
0: It's funny how we have such fluid standards about this sort of thing. I mean, people exactly. felt empathized with by Eliza when it said earlier, you mentioned that you had an argument with your father today. Tell me more about no. that. And right. that's like 20 lines of code in the 60s. And yet you can have a human being who's like a customer service agent saying, oh, that must feel bad. And our sensors go off and say no you're just being insincere about that and so our standards can vary wildly now if we've got a chat bot that just like keeps apologizing but it's incompetent <laughs> yeah. we will devalue those apologies i mean at some point there have been conversations with chat gpt where like particularly with mathematics, you point out, no, that's the wrong answer. And, oh, I'm sorry, yes, you're right, blah, blah, blah. And it does this over and over, and eventually you get that that's just the way it's going to say every time you say you, it got something wrong, which is at least better than saying, no, I'm right, you're wrong, but you lose trust. So how do you create the trust? Or how do you sense that you have trust, and how do you sense that you're losing it? I think you're hitting on it.
1: That firstly, this is a fluid matter. And just like the very first version of iPhone, compared to what it is right now, it's like eons away. It just felt dumb and not that great. But you could sense that the way the technology is going to go, if they've put enough emphasis on it, it's going to become really fluid. It's going to become really powerful. And this is the part that we're noticing, that this is a juncture in time that all of a sudden technology is at a point that this is not possible, that with every iteration, we can make it more trustworthy, more human-like that ultimately maybe lands at the Jarvis level. If it asked me two years ago, I would say, I don't think so, it's like sci-fi stuff. Because you would have to basically pre-program a set of keywords. If you detect this, say this. And then even if you have a thousand of them, it's still at some point, once you see it enough times, it becomes repetitive and kind of like, oh yeah, whatever, you don't really understand me. But now with, with Gen AI, we think it's possible if you keep sort of evolving it, if you keep sort of pressing on it as one of the features that you have to have version two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? Mm. So, so that's one vector. Another vector is actually, let's go back. I was looking up Webster's definition when we started out thinking through this of what is empathy? It's the action of understanding, being aware or being sensitive to feelings, thoughts and experience of another. So I think that's. If that's the case, and I think to us, it comes down to two things. It's the ability to interpret someone's sort of feelings and thoughts and experiences, and then be able to interact with it based off of that interpretation. And we see that in the human side, totally. Like we all have experiences, Mm -hmm. actually, if we go back to our customer service experience, that you're talking to a customer service person, never met them in your life. And we've all had the two distinct experiences. One is you talk to them. And they're like, oh my God, please make it easy for me today. I've had it. It's been a rough day. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, sir, I'm sorry about that. Anyways, we still have to go through this or whatever. And you're like, what? I just told you something. At least a little, <laughs> acknowledge. Acknowledge. versus the good ones, never met you, don't understand anything. They've learned the psychology of humans. And then they would say, well, yeah. I'm sorry, do you you want to tell me a little bit about it? Or how can I help? I'm going to do my best to get you out of here as fast as possible. Like we all have seen the two Mm -hmm. and it's all words based off of their understanding and usually coming off of shared experiences. Like That person who said it right, they've been in your shoes. They understand what you're going through. And then they say the magical words that you're like, oh, okay, that puts him at ease. Right. Turns out, generative AI, we can teach them shared experiences that we have gone through. And then we can say, when you're in those situations, this is what roughly what you're supposed to say.
0: And now come up with similar patterns when you're in those situations. And do you do anything with voice inflection? Because that could convey very different things with the same text. I could say, uh-huh. right, or I could say, right, or I could I'm- say, right. You know, three different, I can come up with more, that okay. go into one word and they radically change the interpretation. Do you do anything with that?
1: Yeah, not only voice, but also facial expressions too. But you're on top of it, exactly. So there's like the text that comes out. Mm-hmm. It's, it all starts from that interpretation of the user's sentiment, And then you have to layer in a sentiment when you're generating the response so that the AI needs to tune to that. But then if it's a voice conversation, there are different tones that you can pick from. And the good thing is we don't need to invent those. Those are services that we've been sort of testing. They all have now different tonalities that you can choose. But so it all starts from that Mm -hmm. interpreting the user's sort of state of mind correctly, and then saying it better. In our case, you can talk to your executive system via email, direct conversation, chat, voice, phone call, also, we have this other experimental thing that started out as a side thing, but now we've seen enough of good reactions. And now we're saying, you can have a video call with this thing. This is actually what you see on our website. When you go to ninjatec.ai, you see these avatars that are human-like. So they are using a set-of-the-art game engine that's mm-hmm. running in Cloud Infra. By set of the art, I mean Unreal Engine 5. That They're not even really mocap-based games around this is they're coming out in the next few months and they're not even out yet. So to your point, you notice that even this thing, if you're talking to this thing via a real-time avatar, it's this, if you don't want to be in this uncanny valley, and now the facial expressions should follow the tone as well. It has to take effect, then it has to show happiness, apologetic, sorry, sad, empathetic, like various different modes based on sort of what's happening. And then it's just, it takes us one step
0: closer right. to like talking to it. And is that uh, facial expression interpretation coming out of the work done by Rosalind Picard and Rana al Kalioubi, who were some of the pioneers in facial expression interpretation. What I'm actually wondering is whether that's like databases that you import that have those model weights in.
1: We looked at those. We haven't found a way to work those through our own sort of this infrastructure that we've set up. It's real-time Unreal Engine 5, and it's streaming down to the user. Mm. Instead of that, and actually even those in the expressions that I've seen, it's they're good, but I'm not sure the application of it just yet. And frankly, we don't have enough experience with those. Mm. What we saw instead, and this is why we like Epic and Unreal Engine, is this power of motion capture. It used to be that only movie studios and whatnot would have those gears, right? But now, the new system, we just motion capture.
0: Right. I think you're talking about the synthesis and I'm talking about the analysis, the recognition.
1: Oh, the recognition. Sorry. I was talking about how it sort of comes back and then sort of Mm. how it shows the
0: actual emotion. How you recognize what the humans... Oh, no. We don't... Specifically around that, we don't have a camera feed.
1: Okay. We're just going off of your inputs and potentially the tone of your voice.
0: So one of the, probably the archetypal demonstration of this was, I think, 2018, Sundar Pichai demonstrated Google Duplex. Mm -hmm. This has gone to, got a huge amount of play. It was making the phone calls to order pizza, book a haircut. And that looked like the future we were on the verge of. Somehow it got a bit derailed along the way. And can you compare your product to that one, like use that as a benchmark, a reference mark, where would you stand relative to that?
1: Yeah, I I was there when we (laughs) rolled it out. It's 2017. I think it was 2017 or so. So it was in Google I.O. they showed it. And now it's made its way into sort of Google Maps. There's some areas that it shows up and then pixel phones. It's mostly dedicated for that. So it can just screen phone calls and stuff for you. Ours, would like to think sort of the we already have those. So yes, we can ask it to reach out to other humans via email or phone call, and it calls them. And it's this notion of a sort of, it's a playbook driven approach. You give it a goal, your your goal is to check on if my drug cleaning is ready for pickup or not, and then just talk to this other human. And it stays on task, or you can say, can you see if they have a room for checking to check into? or a reservation for five people and one of us has a fish allergy. And back then, what Google was showing was not gen AI. It was not generating on the fly. Now it's a lot more fluid because now we can do, especially with our own model that we've tuned it for latency and accuracy for specifically these applications. There. In real time, it's like you're having a conversation with it.
0: Well, we were expecting then, after seeing that demo, the news was all, this is what's going to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen. Is it because it just turned out to be too hard to scale? Because we didn't have the large language models to create enough understanding? But that's where we're heading now, right? Are we now going to catch up with what we were expecting then?
1: I think so. I don't know the exact reasons and the rationale, but I suspect one of it is Google's an international, you know, highly beloved, high value brand. Right. And you when you're putting out a product like that, the expectation is that everyone with all walks of life are gonna use it. Hmm. Because in a startup, they have the luxury of being narrowband and pick basically the right cohort of users and say this is the use case and be a lot more focused. Because it's not about putting it out there to the world. This is like a product for professionals. There's a free version, Mm -hmm. a pro version, business version, enterprise version, and we're actually choosing the free version doesn't even have this specific feature. You have to be a paid customer to use this part because we want you to be a serious user. And we need to build all kinds of systems in place to make sure we avoid abuse and misuse. Right? For Google, like as a ginormous company with Several different products, each one with billion plus users. Right. That's a much higher bar that you have to achieve. Yeah. The, the risk tolerance is lower. So I think the technology needed to get to a point. And I suspect in the next few years, it may make a comeback essentially, but probably Google is going to go in first. Like there are higher priority items for them to tackle. At the moment.
0: And they're actually relatively risk averse, having been burned on things like the photos being identified as gorillas when they were uh, African Americans, which brings me back to something you were getting around to earlier, which is about the different segments of society and the models that we have, large language models trained on a lot of the internet, which is de facto. Weighted towards certain demographics, I mean, Silicon Valley in particular, but obviously white male dominates more. And is there a risk there of products that become empathetic, again, favoring some segment of society just because of the training data?
1: Well, there's always a risk, Mm -hmm. right? There's no way to get around it. And we have to be just vigilant and sort of make sure that we have guardrails in place and also checks and balances in place, a live feedback loop from users and observers in case we're like getting those things wrong so we can observe it. But I would say the risk for us is a little bit lower than others because we're not in the information arbitrage business. Mm-hmm. We're not building a chat GPT or Google Bart or any of those things that we're giving you a piece of information that can be sort of swayed in some shape or form. We're going after sort of factual matters of like, (laughs) is this person available or not? When would you like to do something? Or I'm going to go off and give you three options for hotels. Right? Those are more like matter of sort of facts and based on your preferences, essentially. And I expect sort of challenges and lots of things for us to overcome, but probably less prone to bias data sets because we're not really using it like that. You know, And the empathy parts I don't
0: think so, essentially, but we'll find out. Could it become too empathetic? I mean, there's always that chance that if you go too far in that direction, someone ends up having an affair with their virtual assistant. We've seen a, an influencer create an AI girlfriend, Karen AI, with the explicit intent of monetizing exactly what we saw Samantha do in the movie Her. Yeah, yeah. And that could even happen by accident. Well, it did in the movie. So maybe there's a guardrail or two that needs to be inserted around that.
1: So yes, I mean, those are things, those are additional things that we have to sort Mm -hmm. of look out for. But so the way we are going after, I think you alluded to this as well. It's not just about you to just have a conversation with this thing and have like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. its purpose is to save you time. Mm -hmm. We're an action-oriented sort of company. Our primary objective is to do that. And the secondary is to also be delightful about it. I mean, I don't know how things are going to pan out after we fully launch it. We're doing a lot of user testing right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there are other companies and they do good work. And then there's like all these other chatbots you can go play right. with. Then as a professional user, not geared toward children, essentially, I look at it, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to come back to this. Like it's just, it's a like novelty wears out quickly. And ours is geared toward sort of more professionals, more, it's less about... Yes, fun for the sake of fun.
0: Well, and it's such a superheated space at the moment. Does it feel like trying to hit a target that's moving at the speed of sound?
1: Totally.
0: (laughs) But every week there's a new thing. Right. (laughs) I think the principles should stand. Mm -hmm. I think that companies that
1: end up doing something valuable for you that's lasting and is repeatable, Mm -hmm. valuable as in it saves you time or saves you money, or ideally both, in some shape or form. Those are the last thing. And then the relationship you have with this thing is something that you can see that it cares about you and then you end up caring about this. So to me, that's a sweet spot. And whoever hits those, and I'm I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other companies that are going to try to sort of
0: hit those in their own lane. Will it be an always-on model? Will it only respond to me when I ask it something or will it interrupt me at appropriate times when there's something sufficiently urgent? How will it do that? I don't know yet,
1: to be honest. Maybe. We'll see. Because I'm ambivalent about it because it goes back to that other thing you also
0: brought up. Because
1: it's very easy for it, these things to become annoying. Oh, yeah. And actually,
0: they stop trying. I mean, my Amazon Echo does that. It interrupts to remind me to, with something I told it to remind me of, but we're having a really important conversation right now and it doesn't care about that. It just interrupts. It doesn't have the context, mm-hmm.
1: right? So I, I, sort of the rule number one of sort of Product management to me has is, is been like, okay, just go after the beachhead. Mm-hmm. Like first, do one or two things really, really well before we add all these other sort of super complicated things that would require us to have a lot of other signals. And it's easy to get it wrong, essentially, especially when you're dealing with things like this, that it's a new paradigm altogether. What we're saying is like with our systems, it's going to talk to machines and it's going to talk to humans at your behest.
0: So what's the killer app for this? The scenario that grabs the VCs, the imagination, what do I say to it? What does it do? And that makes me go, oh, wow! I am sold on that. What does that interaction look like?
1: It's going to feel like you're dealing with a human assistant that you would have to pay $100,000 a year to hire them. But then it does like 80% of what they do, Mm -hmm. but at like a fraction of a cost.
0: Is it possible to encapsulate that in a mock dialogue or does it rely too much on context? And you know the experience that it has had with you.
1: No, you're talking to this, and then you you just focus on matter of facts things that you need. Our initial skill, sort of skills that we're training this on, it has to do with sort of calendaring, outreach, general chit chat capability, and then uh, eventually we'll get into bookings of hotels, concerts, car rentals, whatever you sort of need, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's about sort of getting into that Nirvana state that, hey, fly me to New York, ideally this weekend, you know the flight that I like, the airline that I like, and then see what the business class is like. Mm. And ideally get the best price for that. Let the team know that I'm going there, gather everyone in one room at 9am and order us breakfast. And by the way, find us like a Broadway show later tonight. You know to say all of that in right. just bomb up and then let it see go to work in order to sort of get things done for you.
0: I'm going to offend a lot of CEOs with this question, but can you see how this could be adapted to perform some of the executive functions that would be related to organizing the C-suite, like it would be called together directors of marketing, human resource and R&D and plan a strategy for next quarter's new development. What you just described can't do that. It's about calendaring and scheduling and other things. But what you have to do to get it there sounds like without much more effort, you could get it to what I just described. I think it's
1: possible. And that's what we're going to go into stages. The way we are designing this, it's not, which is actually kind of the thing that gives us a lot of confidence that so this is not possible without a foundation model. <laughs> it's notion of having a set of agents, we calling them ninja agents, that we are Training them similar to sort of deep minds alpha go, if you will, but alpha go was programmed. Like here's the rules of the game. And then I'm going right. to teach you how to do it. And then now play billions of times against each other until the neural nets are formed. And then let's go to win the game. This is about like, here's an objective. And then can you learn how to do it mm-hmm. essentially? And then do it thousands of times until you nail it and then save it as a skill. And then now move on to the next skill and the next skill. So, we are building an infrastructure that does this essentially. That's reinforcement learning, then, right? It's yeah, it's reinforcement, le- exactly. It was gradient free reinforcement learning. So, that's the big thing, which is about really doing this also with a sort of a teacher that a teacher itself is an Or You have a scoring function, but in that scoring function is also understanding the end game. So, instead of us hard coding and say, in order to do this, let us program this end objective and can you do it or not, have the LLM to also to generate the problem statement, but also generate what winning looks like and then have it do it enough times until it learns how to do it, which is also, there was a research paper that came out. Once we actually had it internally, we just saw that also Stanford and DeepMind had also a breakthrough similar in the same vein recently, actually, as well, but to me, that's the future and that allows us to get to what you're getting at eventually to be able to
0: do complex tasks. This is fascinating. And we've reached the end of our time here. I thank you so much for the courage to enter a space that is more volatile than I even remember the dot-com era being and is not something for the faint-hearted. Where should people go to find out more about what you're doing and what's going to be happening?
1: Well, thank you for having me people should go to ninjatech.ai to sign up for our waitlist and if you sign up now you get 1 month of the pro version for free once we roll it out but you know what it was like i had this really good job at google i was senior director of product i was there for 11 years and once i had this thought in me like i couldn't let it go like it's this is not possible this is not doable i'm sure it's going to take years to really get it to a point that you and I can talk about it like, okay, now see, like it's doing it for real. We're going to be the first version of this is going to come out in uh, invitation only by end of the year. And then we're going to be out publicly in Q1 at the latest, Q1 2024. But we're already doing user testing internally and we're getting there, the V1 version of this. But once I had the bug, I'm like, this is now, I couldn't think of anything else like with my life to do. It's like for me, I, People also have called this like courageous because it's like there's so much going on. But to me, there's no other job that I want. There's no other thing that I want to spend my time on. And it's definitely not for faint of heart. But once you sort of see like the details of like how this is what's possible now, it's like this is the space to be. And we're gonna do our best.
0: And your passion for that is just so evident there. How would you describe this as a succinct mission statement? The beginning of or the end of some sort of drudgery or what, in your words, is the ultimate goalpost? Well, we're giving everyone a
1: personal AI for work to such that we can take care of administrative tasks to get the drudgery out of work. It's democratizing Mm -hmm. access to executive assistance for everyone.
0: Well, I will be following that keenly because I could use that as much as anyone. So good luck to you, Babak, and I'll be following along. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, big fan, and I'll be continuing to listen to your shows. And I have it on auto save and auto download. Every episode that comes back, it gets saved on my phone.
0: So <laughs> I'm not listening to it religiously. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you having- so much. That appreciate it. Always helps. Thank you very much. Well, that's the end of the interview. You know, we've been talking about having a digital clone of yourself to act as an autonomous agent on your behalf since Audrey Tang, the Digital Information Minister for Taiwan, described that vision in an episode two three years ago, and it's exciting to see how we're getting closer to making that a reality. A quick side note, which I haven't given in a while, I keep forgetting, which tells you how bad I am at marketing, which is to say that if you like this show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform, and a nice review would be even better. Our listenership is up 50% over a year ago, which shows that we can grow despite people no longer being stuck in pandemic lockdown. And if you'd like more people like yourself to find out about the show, the rating thing is just about the only way to do it. We've never run advertising and currently have no intention to do so. And in lieu of that, I just occasionally tell you about my book and my continuing studies course, which are great ways of getting concentrated doses of the kind of learning that this podcast is all about. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers at the University of California at Irvine and UCLA have received a $1 million grant from the National Science Foundation to develop an AI early warning system to predict future pandemics from tweets. Sorry, X posts or whatever we're supposed to call them now. The researchers say, quote, infectious diseases are sociobiological phenomena and leave both social and microbiological footprints, and therefore analysis of patterns in social media postings can detect the spread of a virus, much like Google has done with its influenza detector. Quote, it's a little like searching for a needle in a haystack, said Andrew Neumer, PhD, an associate professor of population health and disease prevention at UCI. Quote, but the stakes are high, so it's worth trying some different approaches, end quote. One major limitation is that the coronavirus originated in China, where Twitter is officially blocked. Ah, but let's see if they've thought about blocking X. (laughs) The researchers are also leveraging data from news media stories, anonymous student health and absence statistics, biological data, and other public information resources. But to help address the lack of COVID-related Twitter data from China, they have turned to monkeypox as a test case. Next week, we'll have a special episode, just me again, talking about how AI affects our relationship with time, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what AI means for our personal productivity, collaboration, and sanity. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating
1: and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at aindyou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, Where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.